0: Thin Air is an independently produced podcast by Daniel Calderon and Jordan Sims. To help support Thin Air Podcast, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. There, you can donate any amount monthly to supporting us. In exchange for a monthly contribution, you will receive rewards. For example, if you contribute $5 a month, you'll receive access to ad-free episodes, mini-episodes, and full PDF transcripts of our shows. Your patronage goes to helping to cover the cost of research, production, and publishing. So if you want to help support our podcast, we would love it if you checked us out over at patreon.com thinairpodcast podcast.
1: We have a new sponsor this month. We're proud to introduce you to BarkBox. BarkBox is a subscription service that delivers a selection of treats and toys for your dog right to your door each month. When you subscribe to a six or twelve month plan, you can get a free extra month of BarkBox. To start your subscription today, go to barkbox.com/thinair. Did she
2: get scared, or did she just think, "Oh, okay, well Kirk will find me, so I just need to relax." Or did she lose her concept of time and say, I just got here, or I've been here for three days? There's just no way to know.
0: On October 15th, 2016, Fifty-five-year-old Nancy Polakis, along with her husband Kirk and some other family members, went to visit an art museum located in the affluent Miracle Mile neighborhood of Los Angeles.
2: My family was visiting, and we went to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art to see my sister-in-law's cousin's photo exhibit. And we spent most of the, you know, late morning and early afternoon at LACMA. We had lunch there and everything. My name is Kirk. T-I-R-K, Moody M-O-O-D-Y, and I'm Nancy Polakis's husband.
0: Outings like this had become less and less frequent in Kirk and Nancy's lives. The year before, in early 2015, Nancy had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, an uncommon form of the disease which affects those younger than 65. Symptoms include memory loss, confusion, changes in personality, and that's just to name a few. Early-onset Alzheimer's is more aggressive, and it progresses more quickly.
2: She had sort of a steady and I'd say slow decline from summer of 2015 to early summer of 2016. But then her decline, to me, became much more rapid. She was having many more problems with, like, anxiety, anxiety. She was having many more episodes where she was pretty lost about what was going on. You know, just she'd be doing something fine and then just sort of not be aware of where she was or what she was doing. She was very much losing her concept of time. There's a condition called aphasia, so it's an inability to say things and an inability to understand things that are being spoken to so you. So you're starting to struggle with language. She had always been a rather quiet person, and this. The aphasia really settled in on her. Sometimes I think that she thought she was saying things and she wasn't. Losing time was kind of shocking. For those of us that don't have dementia, it's really hard to deal with that. Time is so fundamental to us, it's really hard for us to understand why people don't get it. So she was on this sort of a rapid decline like that.
0: Kirk and Nancy lived in Manhattan Beach, around 15 miles away from LACMA. Kirk was retired, and at this point in October of 2016, taking care of Nancy had become a full-time job. The family spent that afternoon walking the museum, looking at artwork. The day had gone well, and Nancy hadn't been showing signs of her usual anxiety.
2: She had a pretty good day where she wasn't getting anxious or having any issues, and she was seemed to be enjoying herself that day.
0: After touring the museum, the family prepared to leave. Kirk took Nancy to the bathroom. The museum didn't have family bathrooms, so Kirk and Nancy got separated.
2: We're at the end of the time that we're going to be there, and I asked Nancy if she wanted to visit the restroom again, and she said yes, so we both went to where the restrooms are on the second floor, and i led her into the women's room and then I went looking for the men's room and there's not one right next to the women's room a little unusual right so it turns out the men's room is downstairs so I ran downstairs and went to the restroom came back upstairs and waited for Nancy to finish after I waited about a minute she didn't come out which is pretty unusual so I walked around a little bit looking for you know where where she went and I went back to where the rest of the family was and she didn't go back there so we walked around the exhibits you know sort of looking for where she might have gone And then we went downstairs and we started looking a little bit more seriously and the security at LACMA saw what, saw that we were looking and asked what was going on and they got very active very quickly and sent out radio calls and so we, we kept looking with security all over the grounds and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art shares their grounds with the La Brea Tar Pits and another, another museum there and very large grounds so we actually spent quite a bit of time looking there and you know it, probably much longer than we should have. After 45 minutes or an hour, I honestly don't have any idea how long it was, you know, we came to the conclusion she simply wasn't on the ground and called the police. So the Los Angeles Police Department shows up, got very active very quickly, you know, looking around in the area with us. I went out in the car with my sister a couple of times, kind of driving around, trying to find where she was. The police did a sweep of the area, like a one-mile, two-square-mile area police had a helicopter up pretty quickly looking for her. And they didn't turn her up.
0: Officers from the Los Angeles Police Department, along with Kirk and the family, searched the area for hours but found no trace of Nancy.
2: This is now late afternoon, and the police are sort of thinking she's, she might actually still be in the museum. And at the end of the day at the museum, you know, they do a sweep. So there is a little bit of a waiting around for that, that to happen at 7 or
0: 7.30. Eventually, police tell the family that because there was just nothing, they might as well call it a night.
2: So the police sort of said, well, there's else you can really do. You might as well go home. So we, we went home.
0: That must have been strange, leaving without her.
2: <laughs> That's an understatement. I called her parents to let them know. I honestly don't remember exactly the timeline, but I'm pretty sure that my sister and I went back to the area that night, that Saturday night, late, you know, late, like 10 o'clock, when we're handing out some flyers to, you know, people that are out on the street around that area and stuff, like bar bouncers that were sitting outside and some homeless people and stuff. And then we came back late, and then, I, of course, I didn't sleep that night, so at like 4 in the morning, I drove back up, 4 in the morning on Sunday, and kind of drove around the neighborhood's which was sort of soul-crushing because it's such a huge city. You just don't get that perspective until you're driving around and you say, my God, you just, I mean, she could be anywhere.
0: Shockingly, Nancy Polakis has never been found since leaving LACMA that day. Six days from the release date of this episode marks one year since she left the museum not knowing where she was going or how to get back to her husband and family. Since that time, her family and friends have mounted an incredible search to find her and they think they know where she could be today and they need your help to find her. I'm Jordan, and this is episode 31 of Thin Air, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the missing. Today's story, Nancy's story, is one that is less than a year old, just barely. We haven't ever covered a story newer than a year, because more recent cases are usually still in development, and most people who go missing within this period of time are found. In Nancy's case, there's been little new information, but we think that someone potentially one of our listeners, could be the right person to find her. Kirk and Nancy first met in 1981. Both were smart, well-accomplished people with good careers.
2: Nancy had a math degree and a computer science degree. She started off in the aerospace business, and that's in fact where we met. Um, she was a summer intern that year, so we met at that time, and that was in 1981, the summer of 81. So she worked there for 10, 12 years, and then she moved on to a financial services company. They provide computer programs and services to large mutual funds and hedge funds and things like that. And she rose very quickly in that Company and she became in charge of their software technology group on the West Coast. And when she started, they had about 20 people in that group. And when she left there in 2001, it had grown to 200 people and it was a, you know, behemoth type of software organization. So she was a very accomplished woman and manager and, you know, software expert.
0: Kirk and Nancy had many friends in their lives together. We had so many people that wanted to speak with us about their love for nancy and kirk and how they wanted to help in any way that they could i spoke with their longtime close friend matt lewis who told me about what nancy was like just a quick note here the audio quality can be a little rough at times so bear with us
3: so there there's clearly been a change in her personality since The onset of early onset alzheimer's so what i'll tell you about is the nancy pre pre disease pre-declined it was like driving off a cliff so before nancy was extremely bright extremely task focused had a great sense of humor was sort of a person who would get stuff done she was an engineer by training had great project management skills and was really fun. (laughs) I know that that may not sound like it comes together, but she had a great sense of humor, very dry, sarcastic sense of humor.
4: She's extremely bright, but she was not a show-it-off bright person or anything like that. She was always very self-effacing.
0: That was Nancy Ward, a longtime friend of both Kirk and Nancy. She shared her memories of Nancy pre-diagnosis.
4: She was the one who would come through with the killer line because her mind was just so much further ahead of of everybody else. There was absolutely not a shred of braggadocio in her, and she could have had tons of it. I think I knew her for a long time before I ever knew she had a pilot's license. Stuff would just come up in in the most um, sort of uneventful sort of, oh yeah, by the way, I did this and so. I mean, you almost had to pull it out of her, because she just... She just was a very accomplished person who was just also a very regular, humble, wonderful person. Their house was the house that everybody gravitated towards.
0: Nancy is described on her missing persons flyer this way, quote, Nancy is a UCLA engineering alum, accomplished businesswoman, animal lover, cherished wife, daughter, and friend end quote talking about nancy before alzheimer's made kirk very emotional
2: she was very from an early age very involved in the outdoors her parents took her backpacking and skiing at early ages so she continued to do that she loved walking she was she for a long time she was a runner she ran a couple of marathons Voracious reader she's the type of person she could read very fast it's kind of a I'm a pretty good reader, too, but she can read about four books in the time it takes me to read one. So um, she's a remarkably fast reader. Yes,
0: yeah, she seems like smart as a whip.
2: Yeah, she was off the charts. Many people have said, um, sorry. Uh, many people have said she's been missing. She's, uh, you know, one of the smartest people. did it remember
0: Kirk and Nancy were so successful that they were able to retire early and together.
2: We retired in 2001, which was right during the dot com buzz. So it turns out we weren't quite as secure as we thought we were in our retirement. But by and large, we were retired since 2001, which is really good because we got to spend, you know, (sighs) several years together. But in
0: 2015, Kirk began to notice changes in Nancy.
2: Alzheimer's is a strange thing, right? Especially on somebody young like this. It's not something you immediately expect when something changes, right? So to me, she was just sort of having some behavioral changes, you know, some minor things. So every once in a while, she'd like forget something. Well, you'd have to know Nancy that she never forgot anything. And then she'd mix up words. And it turns out this is a common sign of dementia. You just don't, again, you're... You, I know this in retrospect, but you're not, it's not the type of thing that you're looking for normally, right? People mix up units. So instead of saying, I was there for seven hours, they might say, I was there for seven miles. You actually do hear people do this every once in a while. They just mix up a word, right? And you don't pay much attention to it. But of course, this is new behavior for her, very strange. Typically, uh, you know, Nancy and I were very comfortable with each other and which, oddly, for a married couple, means you don't necessarily talk one-on-one all that much. So these situations that happened were typically more in social situations, and, you know, often that involves having a cocktail or something, right? So a couple of times when she had something, I said, well, gee, she had one too many. or And she'd actually lost a little weight, so I was wondering if alcohol was actually affecting her much more quickly than it used to or something.
0: Friends also noticed that something wasn't right with Nancy during this time. Matt described a social outing in which Nancy wasn't herself. Again, the audio can be a little rocky here.
3: The Nancy who we knew and loved became a very different Nancy that we knew and loved over time. The changes started out subtly, to the point where that's a little odd. But hey, you know, we all go through periods and we all have crankiness. So you sort of write it off. And at a certain point, there's a number of behaviors, and I remember vividly one night we were in a bar, um, a sports bar, which is one we went, we frequented. And Nancy was not very talkative, and eventually she put her hands over her ears, which is classic dementia behavior. There's, you're overstimulated. You, you can't think anymore. So you try to reduce the stimulation. In that same conversation, she made a very, inappropriate is the wrong word sort of, sort of the kind of comment that you would make to sort of a snotty 12 year old she said something to my wife and we didn't know each other and you just can't see it seemed like it came out of the blue it was really inappropriate and that was the night where we were like something is really wrong
0: once the changes that nancy was experiencing were undeniable Kirk began taking her to doctors, hoping for an answer, one with a treatment so that Nancy could get back to her old self. Nancy passed an initial assessment from her primary physician, but Kirk persisted because he knew something wasn't right.
2: The primary physician said you can get a second opinion, so we went back to a different neurologist, but I talked to the neurologist about behavior things, and so he asked her some questions that were sort of off the test, right? And she didn't do so well. She had this long test, which is called a psychoneuro exam by a different guy. And he was afraid that she had this type of dementia called frontal temporal dementia, which is distinct from Alzheimer's disease. And it affects your speech quite a bit. So we kind of went along on that principle for a little while, but it turns out it was not. From a spinal tap, they looked at some results from that and are able to determine with pretty high confidence that she did, in fact, have Alzheimer's disease. That's a bad news, bad news thing. But early-onset Alzheimer's is sort of the fastest to take effect. It's somewhat distinct from normal Alzheimer's in terms of how quickly it manifests itself. None of these things have treatment, so, I mean, Alzheimer's, there's some, uh, a couple of prescriptions, that, medications, that seem to sort of delay some of the effects, but they, it catches up anyway.
0: Matt explained how Kirk and Nancy's friends all hoped for any diagnosis that wasn't Alzheimer's.
3: When she was going in for the initial uh, brain scans, this is going to sound horrible, but after all doing our naive, you know, non-medically trained homework on the web, we were, voting, we were rooting for cancer, right? We were hoping there's a tumor in there, because you can do something about that. And when that came out to not be true, given the imaging, it was pretty clear what was going on. And that's something you don't turn back. That is, a, that is a clock that only goes one direction. The hope is that maybe we can slow this, this boulder that's going to start rolling down the hill. One of the hallmarks of early onset is that, especially with someone that's really bright, like Nancy, is they know what's going on. They know they're, that, that they're starting to gracefully degrade in terms of their cognitive abilities and executive function and that kind of stuff. So they're really adept at covering. And so you figure out ways to not show people that you're not remembering or you're not tracking the conversation to the point where you can no longer cover. And when you lose the ability to cover, you've already lost so much that when that curtain gets pulled back, it is a stark, again, like driving off a cliff, like, holy cow, like she, like normal conversations are now hard.
0: After the diagnosis, Kirk began taking care of Nancy with support from a wide network of friends and family. As time went on, Nancy's condition worsened and all anyone could do was watch and try to be as helpful as possible. Friend Nancy Ward really stepped up to try and support Kirk.
4: I I knew that they were gonna need help. Nancy was incredibly physically fit her whole life really, but she and I would go for walks at least once a week and that would give Kirk, you know, a little bit of time to go ride his bicycle and, you know, do some stuff for himself. And then another friend and I would try to, you know, plan some kind of an outing at least once a week so that, you know, we were doing things. The aphasia was very frustrating for her because she wasn't able to communicate and she was very conscious of not wanting to appear stupid and not wanting to say the wrong words. So it, it, was, it was difficult. You could see the frustration. We still were able to, you know, through a combination, there was, there was a whole group of friends who really tried to, you know, pull together and, and come up with activities and things. But you could see that there was a decline in those, probably the last two months, it was more a pronounced decline in terms of communication particularly there was much less that she was expressing and she was starting to have some physical problems with incontinence and some other kinds of things that were humiliating and distressing and um but it was yeah i it's, uh, words kind of fail me sometimes i just don't know how to frame it
0: Matt also spoke about how, as Nancy changed, their relationship changed.
3: Once she lost the ability to cover, then things started to degrade really quickly to the point where we started coloring with her and I would take her things like bracelets and hair clips because it made her happy and i get a little choked up. Frankly, this is a, a vice president of a software company that took the company public. I took her stuffed animals and things. A lot of our goals was to get a smile out of that woman. To the point where we couldn't color anymore. She would just uh sharpen the the colored pencils. And she would still get smiles and, and in some way she became a lot like a three year old or where she was could be do something that Nancy would never do, which is yeah, I come into the room and depending on her mood she would jump up and run over and sort of sort of hug me. Like Nancy would never do that. There's <laughs> like this little girl inside of her that for whatever reason was excited to see you and that was her response and it could also be the opposite response right she could not want to see you or want you to go away and she could tell you go away you have to believe that it is still Nancy in there it's just a Nancy that there's been a huge amount eroded away but in there there's still the heart of Nancy
0: Kirk and Nancy were incredibly lucky to have such a wide support network of family and friends that were so willing to get involved and to visit and to help Nancy after her diagnosis. We spoke to Barbara McClendon of the organization Alzheimer's Greater Los Angeles, and she described how isolating an Alzheimer diagnosis can be on the family.
5: I think the disease is terrifying for people because you, you lose your mind right? What is more central to who we are than our mind? One of the big misperceptions people have is that if someone has dementia, they don't have anything to contribute anymore. Can't have a conversation with them. Can't interact with them. None of that is true. My name is Barbara McClendon. I'm with Alzheimer's Greater Los Angeles, and I am our Director of Public Policy.
0: In looking online, there's Alzheimer's and there's dementia. Are they the same thing or is one a symptom of Alzheimer's? Can you kind of explain the the difference?
5: That's a great question and one that we get a lot. So if you think about it as an umbrella, dementia is the term that encompasses all other specific forms. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, but there are
0: many others. Can you kind of describe the symptoms of dementia? So they'll vary
5: depending on what kind of dementia you have.
0: Alzheimer's
5: is probably what people think about the most, which is, you know, short-term memory is is really limited. Uh, As the disease progresses, those longer-term memories, like remembering who their spouse is and their grandchildren are, those start to go. Knowing who they themselves are, being able to look in a mirror and know know who that is goes. And then as it really progresses into the later stages, It's, you know, the body forgets how to swallow, you know, how to walk, how to, you know, dress themselves, toilet themselves. I mean, it's it's like a stripping away of all of the memories and skills that you have accrued over a lifetime.
0: That's so heartbreaking. It's really devastating.
5: It is heartbreaking. And it's also, you know... One of these diseases that in some ways is almost worse for the the people who love that individual. Because at a certain point in the process of the disease, they're not gonna really know anymore what they've lost, but their family does, their friends do.
0: Around the time the family took the trip to LACMA, Kirk was considering more intense out-of-home care for Nancy. So around the time you get October of 2016, she was just at home but for the most part
2: yes so she was still absolutely at home i was trying a couple of different things to sort of get some help for me as a caregiver right i brought in some in home caregivers to see if they could deal with this and it didn't we had a pretty good one that worked out for a couple of times but then she went to a different job and then we tried somebody else and that didn't work out as well just sort of Nancy's not being comfortable with them. For example, she'd take a walk with them, and then she'd want to know where I was, want to get back to me right away. You know, she really wanted to be around me and wonder what's going on with me. So then I was looking into sort of a day program at a, a place called Silverado, which is a in a residence care facility for especially people with dementia, and they have a day program, so she had gone there a few times, so I was looking at ramping that up a little bit. And she seemed to be okay with that. So that I was in sort of a transition period.
0: Around this time, Kirk was made aware of the possibility that Nancy could potentially take off on her own. Alzheimer patients are often known to wander, not knowing where they are going.
5: About 60% of people with dementia will wander at some point, and most of them will wander more than once. Why they wander, sometimes they're bored, they want some exercise, it could be a sign that they need more stimulation, they need more social contact. They're not wandering because they're wandering, you know, they don't, they're not thinking of it like that, they're just thinking, I want to go for a walk. And they're not cognizant of the fact that they can no longer, if they turn that corner, They're not going to be able to work their way back home. They just keep turning other corners. Most people who wander are actually found relatively quickly, within 12 hours of of when they have wandered away. Obviously, the more quickly that person is found, the more likely it is that they're going to be in good condition when you find them. So I, I do think it is a smaller percentage of people who wander and are missing for a, a, a length of time and obviously a, a really small percentage that, you know, in like in Nancy's case, we're coming up on a year and and we don't know.
0: Had this ever happened before?
2: She had left places before, but in every instance, she went looking for me or going home. We weren't really prepared for the idea of her wandering for me. We had just the week before, though, gotten, or maybe a couple of weeks before, gotten these medic alert bracelets, just in case such a thing came up. And so this, it's a passive device, right? It's just a bracelet you wear. It has numbers on it to call if, you know, this person ends up somewhere. And also, I wear one as as well. So if I get hit by a bus it says, hey, I'm a caregiver for a person Make sure that she's okay, right? Fortunately, the way these are set up, her bracelet says, my name is Nancy and I have dementia. She she didn't really particularly care about, care for wearing that bracelet, depending on her mood, right? So she had a tendency to take that off. She was wearing it that, that day. I don't know if she was still wearing it when she went missing.
0: On October 16th, 2016, which is the day after Nancy went missing, Kirk began to mobilize his family and friends in order to find any trace of where Nancy could have gone. Kirk called Matt, and they began a unique and exacting search effort. When, when did you first hear of her disappearance?
3: Sunday morning, October 16th, at about 7 a.m. I got up on Sunday morning, and I checked my email and I got the the message, Nancy is missing, and my life changed. My wife and I literally threw on our clothes and called Kirk, drove over to Kirk's house, and we started looking that morning. We rallied a team and we started dividing and conquering. Well, we're project managers, so we have to have people that are going to put together short-term and longer-term plans. We've got people that are going to coordinate resources. We started sending out teams immediately because once the news spread, people started showing up. We were getting flyers made and coordinating teams to go into different neighborhoods. We got maps out. Started from the first moment trying to get people on the street, but then also trying to contact all of the public services that might have come in contact with her. So set up teams to contact firehouses and EMTs and hospitals and and eventually... Homeless populations and shelters.
0: When you first heard, did you have a thought that she'd be found right away?
3: Oh yeah, that, that yeah. So, well, this is you know, it's hey, what century are we in? It's the twenty first century. This is the middle of a very populated area in Los Angeles. People just don't disappear, right? She's wandering around. She's going to get tired. She's going to either go to ground and take a nap. Eventually, someone's going to see her, and either get help, get to call the cops, or she's gonna show up in an emergency room. Every time the phone rings, that's the call, right? That's gonna be somebody calling with information about her. Because it's unthinkable that in this day and age, this could happen, this cannot happen. When you put out full page ads in LA time and when it's on the news, that night, someone's going to see her. She's not gonna vanish into this gigantic city.
0: One of the most daunting aspects of Nancy's case is that she went missing in the second-largest city in America, which may have hindered the search rather than helped it.
5: Well, that's totally reasonable to think that she'd be found quickly. I know a lot of stories like that, too, of, of someone who wandered away from a restaurant. All the various police agencies in the area were called out, and they were thinking about putting up the helicopter, and then he was found. So four hours later, you know, it's stressful and exhausting, but you have your loved one back. And you would think in a city like Los Angeles with all kinds of resources, right, you know, you've got lots of eyes, you would think, you know, somebody would notice, except that I also think in a city, a lot of times we don't engage with one another. That's just sort of the way we navigate through a city where most people are strangers to us. And so I think sometimes even though theoretically we should see this is a person and they need help, we don't, we don't look and
0: we don't get involved.
5: In a community that's smaller, where people know one another better, I just don't think it operates quite that way.
0: The team started to find clues about her initial direction after she left the museum.
2: So we got my friends involved, and we had a very large volunteer group very, very quickly. And we started trying to see if we could get businesses to allow us to see their security videos to see if we could find her. And again, I'm not positive the timeline, but I'd say within two or three days we did catch a photograph of her apparently walking west on Wilshire Boulevard, about a block away from the museum. So we concentrated on finding more video footage over there and it took another day or two, but we did find it. And then it took us several days to actually analyze the video. And what we were able to come up with is she walked west on Wilshire Boulevard and then turned left on a street called McCarthy Vista. So she's going south of McCarthy Vista. And despite kind of amazing efforts by volunteers to look at all the video from any sources possible from McCarthy Vista. So that's the last we have, Walking South on McCarthy Vista at 315 on Saturday, October fifteenth, 2016.
0: These images are the last time Nancy was ever seen, and are really the last piece of substantial information about Nancy's whereabouts. Her light brown hair is down, just above her shoulders, and she's wearing a red print shirt, blue jeans, sneakers, and glasses. She's holding the case to her glasses in her left hand. These are the last images of Nancy Pollicus. In the initial hours and days after Nancy's disappearance, the team was doing all that they could think of to find her.
3: You still have blind hope because hey, it's. it's... Someone will find her. She cannot disappear. And then it's, well, hey, maybe something bad happened to her, in which case she's going to end up in a morgue. Well, we should be checking the morgues. And so we start checking the morgues. We should be be going under bridges in L.A. County talking to homeless people. We did just that. We handed out flyers under bridges to homeless populations. The idea that she really would have vanished wasn't really possible because that can't happen.
0: Once we get back from a short break, we speak to the current investigator in charge of Nancy's case and we'll explore the leading theory of where Nancy could be now. Join us after this quick word.
1: Barkbox is a subscription service that delivers a selection of treats and toys for your dog right to your door each month. All you have to do is tell BarkBox how big your dog is and choose a monthly plan subscription that you can cancel at any time. Every month, BarkBox will select the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match your dog's needs. BarkBox sent me a box of toys and treats for my dogs Lucy, a black lab, and Leon, a collie mix. One of the first things I noticed was how each of the boxes was themed. This month, we received a space-themed box with a rubber comet ball that Lucy absolutely loves playing with in the front yard. All right, are you ready, talkies? All right, here you go, Lucy. Get it. Good girl. Go get it. The other box was dinosaur-themed, with stuffed toys like Gordon the Giant Sloth and Herbert the Herbivore. As well as all natural chicken treats, adorably called dinosaur meat, basically. Doggies, come here, you wanna try these? Alright, here you go. Can you sit, Leon? Good boy. Alright. Try that. Good oh good girl, Lucy. Here you go. Oh yeah, you guys like that? Do you like that, Leon? As most dog owners can attest, if you make my pets happy, you make me happy. And BarkBox most definitely made both Lucy and Leon happy dogs. After a long day of playing ball with their new toy, they were able to come inside, have some delicious all-natural treats, and cuddle with their new favorite stuffed toys. BarkBox is shipped for free, right to your door. And it's a great way to try new treats and toys from local and small businesses you might not be able to find. All edibles are made in the USA or Canada. And if your dog doesn't like any item from the box, send it back and BarkBox will send you something else for free. To start your monthly subscription today, go to BarkBox.com slash and you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox when you subscribe to either a six- or 12-month plan. That's one month of toys and treats for absolutely free when you sign up for a 6- or 12-month plan. Again, that's BarkBox.com slash ThinAir. Leon, say thank you to BarkBox for your toys.
0: PD had been involved with Nancy's disappearance since Kirk called them around an hour after she went missing from the museum. Nancy went missing on a Saturday and police did searches over that weekend. But by Monday, the case was transferred to Nancy's city of residence, which is Manhattan Beach.
6: My name is Michael Rosenberger. That's R-O-S-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. I'm a police detective with the city of Manhattan Beach Police Department, and I'm the investigator assigned to Nancy's
0: case. Can you kind of describe what some of their initial efforts were to find her? What what their strategy was?
6: She went missing in their jurisdiction, which is several miles uh, from the city of Manhattan Beach and obviously LAPD is a much bigger agency. They have a unit dedicated to just missing persons cases. They deployed quite a few resources. From what I understand, there was a helicopter. I believe they did block-to-block searches. From what I understand, you know multiple police cars arrived, checked the um, museum that she went missing from. Those are the key elements that I know that they deployed, at least on that day. The agency yeah, basically takes the report of where the person went missing from. They're responsible. For at least conducting an initial search um, and exhaust leads that they may have. In this case, as I understand it, LA really had no leads because she was there. Now she's not, and they did what they could do. At what point then do they say, well, you know, we have we have no connection to this woman other than she went missing from our museum. She's your resident. She's you know you're the jurisdiction of residence, So then the case reverts back.
0: Soon after the case was transferred to Manhattan Beach Police, everyone slowly began to realize that the search for Nancy was headed into the long term.
3: After a couple of days, you realize, holy cow, this is looking bad. She should have showed up. And and the, the Alzheimer's, it's wandering in Alzheimer's patients is not uncommon. This happens a lot. And they'll tell you, look, most of them are found within 24 hours or 36 hours, whatever the magic number is. Once you get beyond those first 36 or 48 hours, this is this is bad.
0: A collection of Kirk and Nancy's friends set up headquarters at their home in Manhattan Beach. Kirk opened up and really dedicated his home to the longer-term search for Nancy. They soon realized what a daunting task they had in front of them.
3: We made a map that was roughly the size of a wall in Kirk's kitchen. And the the epicenter of the map was where Nancy went missing from. And I put concentric circles on that map to show all of us how far Nancy could have walked in a straight line if she had walked in a straight line because she was a really fit walker. Once you draw those concentric circles out, you realize that before the sun went down she could have been nine miles away. She could have been at the beach in Santa Monica. She could have been at LAX. She could have been through downtown Los Angeles. And that's within. That's before the sun went down, if she walked in a straight line. And I promise you, she didn't walk in a straight line. But still, it gives you this, this sense of oh, wow.
0: At headquarters, they quickly set up a hotline that anyone could call with sightings, and soon they began pouring in.
2: After about a week of looking for. We had two sightings that were about the same time and about the same place, which was Third and Fairfax, which is real close to where the museum is. And we spent an inordinate amount of time getting videos from local businesses in that area. And there's a lot of businesses and a lot of videos trying to get a picture, you know, trying to get another sighting of her. So that was on the Thursday after she went missing. And we never found a single shot of her anywhere in that area. So I became convinced that those were bad tips. The people that gave the tips though, were just so convinced it was her. Later, about maybe a week after that, we got a tip from a woman who thought it was Nancy leaving a library in North Hollywood. And the library has a video and was willing to turn that over, but it has, the request has to come from Los Angeles Police Department. And so by the time that the request got through, it's just a very frustrating thing is that the video had been erased.
3: We had regular sightings, and we had quick response teams we put together for different parts of the city. So if we got a sighting that said, oh, you know, because people would call in and say, I think I saw her. She's, you know, in the 31 flavors here in, in Mar Vista, or she's on the boardwalk in Venice, or she's... People at the, this local Taco Bell said that they saw her, they saw a woman that looked just like her. So we got a lot of phone calls, and we chased every one of those. We eventually put together a little protocol to see how probable it was that it was really Nancy. So if she was talking to them fluently or someone had a conversation with her, it wasn't Nancy. That is no way that that was Nancy. But if if it was just a, a woman with the right age and the right description, boom, people took off. We had phone calls that were made to teams or the individuals would be dispatched from our headquarters operation to go chase that down. So we had a lot of hope.
0: What were the most credible sightings, do you think?
3: One of the ones was... At night in Santa Monica, I was I was at the headquarters at, our, at Kurt's house, and we get the phone call there's a there's a homeless woman that matches her description. She is on a park bench on promenade in Santa Monica, and she is there now. So right hair color, right rough age, the, the description of the clothing didn't match, but it had been long enough that maybe she went, she went to one of these shelters and got free clothes. So we dispatched um, actually one of my graduate students who happened to live in the area that was, had volunteered. and. He went up, found the woman on the park bench, actually woke her up and took a picture, and, and it was not Nancy, right? But that was, that was one that we got excited about because everything matched, right? But there were some others uh, that seemed like they were reasonable hits. And, and, and one that was a woman that said that she was at MacArthur Park, um, which is an area that has a huge number of homeless, and she had, she had seen her, and she perfectly, and we sent out, we dispatched groups to go out there and find her and, and take pictures, and, and that was the one, the person was so sure, and had seen her more than once, that we were also, had our expectations falsely raised, but hey, if it's a shred of, we have nothing to lose, right? If it, if it's, if it meets the minimum criteria that we we put together for our protocol to check it out, then we're going to go check it out. And we chased, again, hundreds of those.
0: Detective Rosenberger stressed what a thorough job Kirk's team has done in the search effort for Nancy.
6: Well, for me, the the majority of the work is um, in Kirk's hands and his team. They have done just such an incredible, amazing amount of work. My job right now is to back them up. I don't have any fresh investigative leads. We've met, we've talked, we coordinate, and I just wait for times when Kirk reaches out and says, hey, my team is trying to get some information to this location. Every so often, they'll hit a roadblock where someone says, well, we need to hear from law enforcement. We need to have a a a police officer. Kirk emails me, and then I'll do what I need to do to try to get past that obstacle.
0: Yeah, their team is really incredible.
6: Yeah, it, I mean, it helps when you have a, a whole bunch of aerospace engineers and, and analysts. Uh, I don't know if Kirk was able to get you any pictures of their command post at Kirk's house. It was just, it was just impressive. You know, there's as good as anything um, we could have done here at this police department. And quite honestly, there's only barely nine detectives we have. You know, I'm the one who works missing persons. They were invaluable and, and are um, an amazing resource.
0: One of the early theories was that Nancy was on the street, living amongst L.A.'s large homeless population. But because of Nancy's condition and inability to speak, many sightings were dismissed because they simply couldn't be her.
2: You have to be a little bit skeptical about a lot of the sightings. I'll be very honest with you. It's, just, it's, it's beyond my comprehension how Nancy could have survived on the streets this long. You know, I was caring for her twenty four hours a day when she went missing, so she would have type of medical issue and then who in the homeless community could possibly take care of her that much? No you know, no one. It's impossible. They're trying to take care of themselves. It just doesn't add up for me that she could she could be there. And plus the LAPD is very active with the homeless community and they do know about it. And we went to all the shelters and the homeless community is actually much tighter than you think it is and they know everybody. And none of them have seen her, so it just doesn't make sense that she'd be in there, to me anyway.
0: Another strategy that the team employed was setting up a network of friends and volunteers who would call hospitals in and around the L.A. area. A woman who has helped organize this and continues these calls today is an old friend of Kirk and Nancy's named Peggy Griffith. Peggy lives in Colorado and couldn't help the search in L.A., so she joined a team of other friends calling hospitals and asking if a Jane Doe had shown up there.
7: It was basically, hey, do you have a Jane Doe, etc., and it was pretty much just trying to find it, because at that point also, I don't think we understood the vastness of it. I think it was just a simple, hey, we're going to find her right when we call ICU of these hospitals. And after the second week, we had callers that were helping. And so probably for the first six weeks, that was the same question, call the ICUs, etc.
0: As the calling crew began to make calls to emergency rooms, they faced a variety of challenges. The first was that emergency rooms are busy places with rotating staff. The challenge with the
7: hospitals is that you don't get the same response, but more than that, and you have to, I think, look at it from their perspective, which I don't think I ever did before at this. We're calling the ER, or we're calling the front desk. On the weekends, there's not the same people, but also they're on 24-hour shifts, let's say three days. So you might get the same person, but then you get the next three days, you get people that don't know, so you're starting over. In addition to that, they also might be in the middle of five ambulances coming in, and they're trying to answer a question that they answered yesterday. There was annoyance, there really was, from some people, but then there's others that are are so heartfelt, you feel that they, they really understood what you were going through. The other frustration with it is every single hospital has something different, they have a different way. For example, a lot of them, you go into ICU if you were brought in, but some of them don't do it that way. So you call ICU thinking that every single hospital is going to go through the ICU, and you find it that, no, they go through this other department, and we haven't caught that department. And so that's the other frustration, is that every single hospital is different.
0: The theory that Nancy made it to a hospital is the leading theory to explain Nancy's continued disappearance for both Kirk's team and investigators. Detective Rosenberger and Matt discussed this. I would say there's one prominent theory of where she is now, and I would say they believe that she's still alive, that she is in a healthcare facility of some kind. I guess I just kind of wanted your perspective on that.
6: Yeah, we 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 subscribe to that too and not merely just because we obviously hope that that's the, you know, the positive outcome, but despite it being a giant city, I have received calls from the coroner's office, Uh, there was a a Jane Doe that was killed in a car accident and they called me and asked about some tattoos and I said, no, she doesn't have any tattoos. But the fact was, this was like several months later and at the coroner's office, it's still aware of her and, you know, checking and paying attention to me. For the most part, as as people may think Los Angeles is, we don't have like a ton of dead bodies just laying around, you know, in some ditch somewhere and nobody notices. The other thing with having people everywhere is people are everywhere and they know those things. Kirk and the, the team did a bunch of outreach to the homeless community. Due to her condition and state, it, it just, it's just implausible that she's hanging out in a homeless camp, you know, living her life under a bridge uh, along the LA River. We don't think she's dead, only just from a, you know, we can't prove a negative. We haven't come across her and the coroner's office hasn't.
0: Matt also described the reasons why the team to find Nancy believes that the most likely possibility is that she arrived in a hospital or care facility. She has not shown up in a morgue,
3: so she's either gone to ground somewhere where we cannot find her body. We've gone out and talked to cadaver detection teams in a, in a city environment to have a cadaver go missing is is not very usual. Usually. They're detected. People smell it. So the idea of her going to ground and not discovering her body because she went to ground seems pretty low probability. Then the, the the probability that she that some evildoer found her on the street, was able to convince her to get in the car because she was she did not like strangers. And that she's in a shallow grave somewhere intentionally, seems pretty low probability to me that in the length of time that she's out. An evildoer will actually, a serious evildoer will find her and do evil to her. I, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, and I, I try to look at probabilities of things occurring and, and try to estimate probabilities, and that can be a dangerous game, right? Because we're biased, we have hopes. I, here, I will run you through my chain, my logic chain. She's wondering through Los Angeles. She probably is frightened. She probably does not want help. Eventually, she's gonna get so sick or so tired that she's going to require attention. Someone is going to help her get attention. She is not gonna be able to say what her name is. She has taken off her ID bracelet because she never really liked that anyway. So she is a Jane Doe and she gets into the system and she may have gotten into the system pretty quickly. So the probability that that scenario played out is she's pretty likely to me
0: If Nancy did make it to a hospital, how is it possible that she was never identified? The first issue was that Nancy didn't have any fingerprints on file with any law enforcement agency, as Detective Rosenberger explained.
6: Nancy is in such a weird spot because she has no criminal record. She's a good, you know, freaking uh, pilot. She's an engineer. She had top-secret security clearances. That almost worked against her because her prints aren't in the system. How crazy is that? Let's say some gung-ho nurse or somebody was like, you know, I got this patient here. They just came in. We can't figure out who she is. Let's roll her prints and submit it to whoever might do it. I guess the health department. I mean, I'm not even sure how that would work. They would just come back as not on file. Now, the only thing we have now is a thumbprint because of her DMV, her California DMZ, the, the thumbprint. NamUs, they, who are they're awesome, have a print tech do her prints up so that at least we got a thumbprint out there. So if a thumbprint gets a scan, that should pop up, and they also did the um, DNA for us.
0: The next roadblock is, if Nancy is in a facility, getting information from these places is difficult because of HIPAA laws, which we have discussed on the podcast before. When someone from Nancy's team calls a hospital, they are often met with a denial for more information because of the HIPAA privacy law, which often does not apply in the search for Nancy. Can you kind of explain a little bit of how HIPAA affects the investigation?
6: It creates an obstacle because you're retaining information that we would otherwise get. There are obviously valid privacy reasons for the law. I'm not saying that there aren't, but you're asking me, when I call a care facility and want to know if there's a Jane Doe with this height and this weight, and somebody says, I can't get that information because of HIPAA, I would call that an obstacle. The, The challenge is, it's one of these frustrating things because then, okay, well, how are we ever going to find a person if you're going to shield a non-communicative, anonymous person? You're basically putting that person into a room so nobody could ever see them, right? So my, my thing would be like, okay, well, if you've got a Jane Doe, I wish you would be somehow required to to submit something because you're, you're going to want money for her, and that's the angle that we approached primarily now, see if we can find her. There, there needs to be some accommodation to say, well, wait a minute, we don't even know who this person is. Now I get it. So Kirk's team, civilians, they call up, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, we don't even know who you are. Fair enough. But I can come down there and identify myself as a law enforcement officer. I can submit a letter saying, yes, we're conducting an investigation. So there you are. We're the real deal. Who are you protecting? It's gotten so bizarre. No one knows anymore. People just yap HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA. That's all we hear. Well, that's 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 great. We're We're not trying to find out if you have uh you know toe fungus we're trying to find a missing woman
2: and unfortunately hospital personnel really do not understand the extent of the HIPAA laws so any anything that has to do with a crime or a missing person a lot of the HIPAA laws go away and the police do have access to that information but they'd be denied that by some people anyway and i find that a lot i go to hospitals and they say well no i I can't give you that information because of HIPAA laws. And I said, well, actually you can, right? You're, I'm just asking for whether or not this particular person has been in the hospital, and that's that's not by, by HIPAA. And I do have POA, and if you didn't want to give it to me, you are almost obliged to give it to the police because they've asked. But in defense of the hospital workers, I don't think they're evil people or anything else. You know, if you give away that Farrah Fossa was here getting a tooth job, man, you know, you're going to jail. And what if I'm an abusive husband, right? And they tell them they're not. I, I get her back out and beat the crap out of her, right? I I underst- I get all that. But the fact that it's sort of a legitimate police missing persons case means that they get, they can say, okay, that's not the case. We we do need to release the information. And again, if not to me, release it to the police, right?
0: Because of her experiences making these calls and seeing firsthand the staggering amount of bureaucracy, Peggy agrees that Nancy is likely in a healthcare facility.
7: I think she's in a facility, and I can tell you from my experience why. So in the beginning, we had a couple of us that were just making calls to all the hospitals. I want to say there were like 170-something. And we did that for a couple weeks, maybe two to three weeks, maybe only two. And then we found out that there were a lot of other remote people that wanted to assist. And so that's when we started having these crews that helped. And so my job became assigning um, calls to make. And so my logic was that I would assign a new hospital to a, a different caller every single day with the thought process that, If caller A didn't get something at that particular facility, then the next day maybe caller B would because of a different approach or talking to someone. For six days, we had six different people calling this particular hospital. And every single day they were told there was no patient that was not identified. For six total days, six different calls. On the seventh day, the seventh caller that got assigned on the seventh day, they were told there was a Jane Doe. And that Jane Doe had been in the hospital for eight days. I think it's very plausible that she is sitting in a facility and has changed enough physically and cannot communicate that somebody doesn't know that it's Nancy.
0: A troubling possibility with the hospital theory is that she might not even be registered as a Jane Doe some think it is possible that someone in a care facility needing money to pay for nancy's health care assigned her an incorrect name and social security number
3: if you run a residential care facility you want somebody in your bed Is that's the way you're making money so you're looking for clients so there's an incentive for you but the thought that that could happen is bone chilling that someone could get in under a, the wrong name and ssn Yet, we get reports, first-person reports, of this happening.
0: While I couldn't find a news story of this happening specifically, Matt referred to a first-hand account of a woman who this happened to in Los Angeles in 1999. The story is detailed on their blog, nancyismissing.blogspot.com, and it reads, quote, My sister-in-law walked away from her home in the La Brea, Melrose area in 1999. She was unable to communicate. We hired a retired FBI agent. He searched area nursing homes to no avail. He circulated the reward posters to the area nursing homes and three days later she was found. A podiatrist assistant claimed the reward. He did foot care on patients in nursing homes and recognized her. My sister-in-law had been picked up on the street by an employee taken to the home, given a new ID including name and SSN, to collect medical reimbursement. When reported to LAPD, they were aware that it is a common practice.
2: Most hospitals will call the police pretty quickly. But the reason why the hospitals are so interested in finding out who somebody is, part of the reason is they want to get paid, right? And they're not gonna get paid if, they, if it's just a Jane Doe. Given that, certainly certain, certain hospitals deal an awful lot with uh, populations that they don't want necessarily to turn over to the police. Not to put too fine a point on it, right, but, uh, you know, if the hospital is afraid that the police are gonna have the person deported because they're a undocumented alien, the missing persons bureau has no interest in deporting anybody. <laughs> a, a very strange fear to have, but I think that some of us, you know you, you know, you don't know what the training of the hospital workers or what their life experiences are to lead them to believe that that might be the case.
0: This was so hard for me to think about. How could this be possible? that Nancy is in an L.A. hospital or care facility right now, incorrectly identified. Detective Rosenberger thinks this is a possibility.
6: There are just a bunch of care facilities in the county that deal with lots of the indigent folks, and the system of tracking of the intake, the registration, and the tracking of patient care is Byzantine at best just so random, it boggles the mind. And I truly obviously had no clue about it either. The idea that many people have that somehow every missing person is gonna be checked against some magical database is just preposterous. And there's nothing like that going on.
0: That is just so terrifying to me that she could be in a facility right now and you just don't know about it.
2: Well, right. But that's maybe a better scenario than other scenarios, right? I mean, at least she's prepared for, right? If she could have been through a hospital, I'm trying to find that out. In the residential care facilities, if they're licensed, they're on in a database that the Department of Social Services of California has. So just last week, we sent out 8,900 postcards to every one of the residential care facilities in the eight counties that make up Southern California. Last year, we sent out letters to all those places, and we've, unfortunately, half of those places are what are are called six-packs. They have six beds or fewer, so people convert a home into a care facility. But we can't call all those, but we I bet you we've called almost all the other ones, all the ones that have more than, say, 10 beds. We've, we've called them, and we visited probably 700 of them or so not even a trace of her in any of these places right it's kind of phenomenal quite
3: frustrating
0: as nancy still has not been found the team focuses on supporting kirk continued outreach and following up with hospitals
3: now there's a yeah, we have a regular support group that still meets for kirk every friday night there are a number of folks who are volunteers spread around the country and bless their hearts that are still willing to call hospitals and if 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 she she really thinks she's there, we should keep pulsing the system to see if we can get a signal back, to see if we can prod the system and get someone to go look at either that Jane Doe that's in that bed or that woman that has the wrong name and the wrong social security number that is really Nancy. Many people's reaction should be, that's impossible. How could that be? And yet, You will find people that will tell you that, yes, that still happens. We still find people under the wrong name and social security number that are in a residential care facility. Someone recognizes them or for whatever reason, they pop out. Someone realizes that's not really who, that's not really Mrs. Jones. That's, that's somebody else.
0: Many of the people that we spoke to discussed prevention, the hope that Nancy's story will stop this from happening to someone else. As wandering and Alzheimer's is a well-known phenomenon, Barbara from Alzheimer's Greater Los Angeles spoke of many different strategies available to those with Alzheimer's and their caregivers to prevent loved ones with Alzheimer's from going missing, like Nancy.
5: A lot of people don't think their loved one's going to wander, and it's so so common that when that person does wander and you go back to that family member and you say, you know, did you think this might happen or have they ever done this before? It's no, they, they never left the house before. I think for anybody who gets a dementia diagnosis, so a loved one, they need to know that this is absolutely a possibility. And in, you might even think of it as a likelihood. So you should sign up for, there's a program called Medic Alert it's the bracelet. The bracelet goes on the caregiver, and the bracelet goes on the person with dementia, and it doesn't have a name on it or that any kind of personally identifying information, but it's got the phone number and it says, you know, this is the, this is the person with dementia. So that if they're found, they can then contact MedicAlert, MedicAlert can then contact that caregiver and they can be reunited. So that is low cost. It's easy. I know there are some people who say, well, my loved one won't wear a bracelet. I still think it's worth contacting MedicAlert and talking with them um, about what can be done. Secondly, there are programs out there that are cell phone based. So you can track your loved one. Now, this means you need to have a cell phone that has a working battery. That's why I think a multi-layered approach is good. So the low technology that MedicAlert provides, and then you can look at some of these higher technology programs, the, some of the apps that you can have on cell phones so that you can find one another. I also think that it's useful to contact your local law enforcement just Go down there and meet them and and tell them about your loved one. And it's very possible that you might find that they have some kind of a program for people who wander in the community. What's happened over time is there isn't a comprehensive answer to this.
0: Peggy argued that changes need to be made as far as how we as a society deal with Alzheimer's and its devastating effects.
7: I just keep trying to think of the positive that, one, we are going to find her. I I just feel that. And number two, all the things that the efforts that have been done by the group that's been trying to find Nancy go beyond this. And my hope is that as tragic as this event is, that the actions that all these people that even don't know her that have helped... Will make a difference down the road for others that might go through this because there has to be a change because this is just too heartbreaking to think that it just continues this way.
0: What changes would you want to see made in the future?
7: I think that it doesn't have to be as bureaucratic. There has to be a way. The fact that we have an amber alert, the silver alert is different for each state, where amber alert is across the country now. My hope is that maybe there might be at some point an Alzheimer's awareness if we don't fix not just finding a cure for the disease, but this impact to the family, the caregivers, the hospitals, the facilities, et cetera, that this will bankrupt Medicare. We have to find a way because this isn't going away as far as we can tell until they find a cure. And if it impacts people's lives, and now we're having people like Nancy that are you know, young onset, early onset, there's got to be something we got to do because... The bureaucracy and the effort that goes into trying to find something that's missing in today's environment with today's technology is just mind-blowing and heartbreaking.
2: We participate in this task force that uh, the L.A. County supervisors have started to look at having tracking devices available for people with dementia, and I, I want to give a shout-out to that. I think that's a really important thing to do. Um, it's called the Bringing Our Loved Ones Home Task Force. I am frustrated by the medical system, but I don't really have any stones to throw there in terms of, you know, they're, they're not set up to, to find missing people. They're set up to treat people that are having problems, right?
0: So, knowing all of this, where is the case now? Matt urges anyone who works in the healthcare industry in Los Angeles or surrounding counties to please look at Nancy's missing person flyer and to check the faces of patients.
3: In every one of our pleas, when we get a hold of the media, it's always get the word out that she is out there somewhere and she needs, someone needs to find her. And it's not gonna be us. It's gonna be someone who either visits those facilities or works in those facilities get her picture into those people's hands and go look at Mrs. Jones again and see if that really is Mrs. Jones or if that's Nancy. Given our hypothesis that that's where she is, that's who's gonna find her. We cannot get into those facilities and we have tried. It's gonna be up to the staff and the visitors to recognize Nancy and help us get her out. That's, that's for Nancy, that's the, that is our uh, primary concern the global concern is how do you stop this from happening again like what are the things that we as a society should be doing the first is to have family bathrooms like Kirk couldn't go into the women's bathroom with her there's certain organizations where it's it's there now there are pictures of you know a man and a woman on the door of the bathroom it's it you want to take your kid in there or you want to go in there as a family you can go in there as a family but that is not common and that's was it, at the root cause of this problem was that. So that, that's something that we as a society should be doing.
0: When I asked Kirk to describe ways that people can help find Nancy, he was sort of at a loss, considering all of the work that has already been done.
2: That's a really hard question to answer anymore. So we do have a volunteer corps of people that make telephone calls for us. And the way to volunteer for that is to write an email to Nancy is missing. All one word at gmail.com, and that's information's on the blog. So if they really want to make phone calls or something, that's that's the way to help. I've got people that are willing to be boots on the ground, but I don't have anything for those people to do. Hospitals don't want to cooperate on the telephone. Then what that typically requires is that I have to personally go to the hospital and show them that I have Nancy's power of attorney to get them to do anything. And so I'm willing to do that. So having somebody else do that doesn't do any good. And I don't have any, you know, active search efforts out there again in terms of just going to neighborhoods and stuff because I don't have any ideas on what neighborhood to go to or what, you know, how that would work anyway. So I don't really have if people have ideas along those lines, I'm very open to them, but I'm I, again, I don't know how that would work really.
0: If you live in L.A. or nearby and you think you see Nancy, Detective Rosenberger told us what you should do next. If someone thinks that they see her, what should they do? Should they, should they approach her? Should they wait? Like, what would you want them to do?
6: I would want them to contact a local law enforcement agency right away. So if you're in Inglewood, um, you're pretty sure that's her. Call Inglewood police and say, hey, I think this is that missing person, Nancy Polakis. That way some police officers can come out and, and, and initiate contact and make some kind of positive identification. It doesn't, the person's not put in that awkward spot of going, Hey, you know, you're this person. Then the officers can contact us. I'll get hold of Kirk and the, between the two of us, we can verify it. If that's, the, the all the time that this has happened, what'll happen is somebody will say, Hey, I think this lady's, you know, this bag lady over here. And here's a picture of her in some case, maybe. And then Kirk will look at it and say, no, or, the person will then get more information. Like, oh yeah, she talked to me and she said she was doing this and that, blah, blah, Well, she doesn't talk, so that's not her. you know, she's not getting better out there. She's probably degenerating even worse. So we can rule those things out, you know, and then based on physical descriptions, things like that. Once again, my answer is call your local police to have them contact and identify the person that you think she is. Now, if you're saying, oh, I saw the lady four days ago and now I just saw it, right, so not in front of you, then give our agency or Kirk's hotline a call and um we'll we'll look into it.
0: After all of this, all of the incredible effort to find Nancy, I couldn't help but go back to the moment that she left the museum that day and think about what was in her mind and what her goal was. I asked Kirk if he thought about this, and his answer, while perhaps not useful when trying to figure out where she went, was heartbreaking. Nonetheless, In the moment that you two get separated at, at LACMA, do you do you think of often about, like, what was in her mind? Do you think she had any kind of idea of where she wanted to go? Or is, do, you, do you go back to that moment often and think what was she thinking?
2: I'm convinced that what she was thinking was that she needed to find me and that I, had, I you know, we were going to the restroom before we were going to leave. So I think she thought, we left. You know, trying to put myself into her head, okay, how is she gonna do that? I keep on telling myself and other people, we can't do that, we can't put ourselves in her mind, we don't know what's going through her head, right? So the question has come up, would she get on a bus? Okay, well, my guess is no. You know, in the first couple hours, unless I'm with her, it's extremely unlikely that she's gonna get on a bus. Unless the bus said Kirk, she's not getting on it. She could be, At some point, get into a a high anxiety mode and behave quite irrationally as far as, you know, I'm concerned. Or she could have a behavior that I'm just completely unused to. Well, did she get scared? Or did she just think, oh, okay, well, Kirk will find me, so I just need to relax. Or, Or did she lose her concept of time and say, I just got here, or I've been here for three days? There's
0: just no way to know. Fifty-five-year-old Nancy Polakis has been missing since October fifteenth, twenty sixteen. She's an Alzheimer's patient who was uncommunicative and had severe dementia. She is five foot seven, weighs one hundred and forty pounds, has blue eyes wears glasses, and has light brown graying hair. She was last seen after leaving the Los Angeles County Museum of Art on the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax in Los Angeles. There's a $30,000 reward for information that leads to Nancy's recovery. Please visit nancyismissing.blogspot.com for extensive information on Nancy's case, including a hotline to call if you have any information. It is believed that she could be in the medical system in Los Angeles or nearby cities. If you or anyone you know works in a hospital, care facility, or other service that cares for patients in the LA area, please look at Nancy's missing persons flyer. Look at her face and see if you see her in one of your patients. Please consider printing a flyer and displaying it in your facility. Nancy was a beloved wife and friend and needs to be reunited with the amazing people who have devoted themselves to her safe return. Thin Air Podcast is created by Jordan Sims and Daniel Calderon, with production assistance from Nate Halda. Special thanks to Roger Sims for his help with this episode. Music today was by Chris Zabriskie. You can check him out at chriszabriskie.com. Certain donors through our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash thin air podcast, get rewards for supporting our independently created podcast. One of the rewards is to be credited as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Nicole Canterbury, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Ellie Eisenhart, Susan Anderson, Art Fargus, Lane McManus, Heather Cadu, Mistaya Pena, Bonnie Mortensen, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you all so much for your incredible support of what we do here at Thin Air Podcast. Thank mm-hmm.